Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure, Take with, the adventure us. with us. With us. With us. With us. With us. With us. for some appropriately heady and trippy music for our excursion into one of the most celebrated works in the ancient world, Euripides the Bacchae. Hey, welcome everyone. This is Sean Marlon Newcomb. Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax Channel, and we will be exploring a great classical work by a great classical writer, Euripides the Bacchae, and who better to guide us into this mystical journey and the one, the only, Dr. Gary Stickle. Welcome, Gary. Yeah, that, hi, Sean. Good to be back. That was your your group of Bacchic revelers, the, the yeah. wild women of the mountains. So this is a great play. Um, let's... First, let's set it up for the listener. What is Euripides the Bacchae? What's it about? I went to a performance of the play at the Getty Villa years ago. I I, I went to a performance of that same play with you. <clears throat> and um, it had uh, good elements and bad elements. It had part of the, um, you know, text... Uh, recite in Japanese of all things, which I thought was ridiculous. Um, but anyhow, the greatness of the play comes through and, and in the brochure they had, I'm, I'm gonna read from part of it. It says, plays written 2,500 years ago, continue to lure directors and actors to the stage. What is it about these ancient stories that makes them endure? So, <clears throat> Greek tales of war, betrayal, and revenge, the struggle to stay true to the ancient voice. And uh, and why Euripides Bacche pushes the boundaries of Greek tragedy. And it really does. Uh, Euripides is my favorite uh, <clears throat> playwright of, of the Greek tragedies. And my translation is University of Chicago and it's translated and had an introduction by uh, William Errol Smith. And um, the play is, <clears throat> excuse me, the play is about um, the god Dionysus, who um, I thought was basically the god of wine, women, and partying. Uh, and um, that I thought he's basically a benevolent God, but in this play, he's not benevolent at all. Well, I mean, it, the interesting thing about Dionysus, I mean, I always, when I think of Dionysus, I think of Jim Morrison. I think of, uh, he's to me was like the modern day embodiment of it, which is that you have this revelry, but it is, there's a darkness to it always. There is that duality. I mean, the play is all about that duality. 
you know, the, the price that is paid for going to either extreme. So Dionysus is wine, women, and song, but he's also destruction. What happens when you drink too much? What happens when you indulge too much? You know, it's, it's about, you know, uh, that to me is what's fascinating about it. But that's, that's how I would describe it to the listener. You know, think of if you can think of, I mean, that's an old reference now, but people still follow the doors. Jim Morrison, the doors music, it's very, uh, has this Dionysus feeling and quality to it. Well, that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> anyhow. So again, so this, this idea of Morrison, uh, and you were, you were going on in terms of uh, what you saw about Dionysus. The um, introduction by the Theral Smith, it says uh, in 408 in BC, <clears throat> at the age of 70, apparently bitter and broken in spirit, Euripides, Euripides left Athens for voluntary exile at the court of Archelaus in Macedon. And there in 406 BC, he died. After his death, his three last plays, the Bacche, Iphigenia at Olus, and the last play, Alcimion at Corinth, were brought back to Athens by the dramatist's son, Euripides the Younger, and produced it. And then it won for the dead author the prize so frequently denied him during his lifetime, which I thought was very interesting. Of itself, the Bacche needs neither apology nor general introduction. It is clearly and flatly that unmistakable thing, a masterpiece. A play for which dramatic turbulence and comprehensiveness and sheer power of its poetry is unmatched by any except the very greatest among the ancient and modern tragedies. You have to go to Oedipus Tyrannus by Sophocles or Agamemnon by Aeschylus or Shakespeare's Lear to find anything quite like the range and power. Uh, even then it remains, of course, unique. So you've just named uh, the the big three of the, well, of course, Shakespeare uh, um, for us and the English language, but the big three of the ancient Greek dramatists, uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides uh, for the listener. So these were the, these were the great writers of that, uh, of that culture. Um, yes. Uh, well, I should, we should throw in Aristophanes in terms of as a great writer, but he was known as comedic playwright. Yeah. And we're talking about tragic. Yeah, yeah. Tragic, tragic writers. Okay. So we have, so now we have this up. So Euripides, one of the greats, uh, Medea, he has uh, great works that have come down to us. So he has as this setting, uh, Dionysus. It's interesting that he goes to Macedon because Macedon at that point, right, would have been more of a country, a wilder region of of the Greek world. So he's dealing with this kind of um, this god of that comes out of the wilderness, this god that that has his rights in the out in the hills, in the in the forests, uh, among the trees. So it's interesting that that's coming out as he as he is writing there in Macedon. And also, as the as many have said, he had this sort of renaissance, a personal renaissance when he got there. Um, so what's what's the setup for this play, Gary? Well, uh, Dionysus comes to uh, Thebes 
and uh, he uh, confronts the king of Thebes, a young man, his name is Pentheus. And Pentheus becomes a noble martyr in the play, and Dionysus becomes, a, as uh, described in the introduction here by Errol Smith, becomes a devil in the play. Um, do, and he do, says uh, the subject of the Bacche um, is a historical event, the invasion of Hellas or Greece by the rites of Dionysus. Mm -hmm. so Dionysus comes to Greece and, um, and he demands uh, worship. And actually, he's the last of the 12 Olympian gods. Mm -hmm. And um, interestingly, in the play, eight of the Olympian gods are mentioned. So a lot of them. <clears throat> and then he, he mentions also Rhea, the mother goddess, and, and even Pan. And he mentions Artemis. Artemis comes up a lot because it's used as, a, uh, as something as compared to what's happening in the play. Uh, Artemis, we, uh, we have to give her our shout out as always. We love Artemis here, and she's the matron of the Amazons. So... So he other, comes, other to, comes, um, comes to Thebes. Okay, he comes to uh, Thebes. Other subtext of the play is uh, the Greek concept of Sophia. And uh, Sophia is roughly translated as wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> we, get that, we get that in a Christian context, too, from the Greek. Uh, and, and, the and, and then the opposite is uh, amathia, which means uh ungovernable ignorance mm -hmm. and so on and uh, prone to violence harshness and brutality and so on mm -hmm. so these are subtexts of the of the play yeah i mean i saw as and we'll go through it because again the setup is dionysus the wild god i mean again we're talking one of the dualities that i see is you know east and west so to speak because obviously you and i have talked about this gary the way we define East is a little different than the way the Greeks defined East. So something across the Hellespont is Asia for them. We think of Asia as East Asia, but they're just really talking about uh, another region. They're talking about what, what is Turkey today? Modern Turkey. And modern Turkey today is, a, is peopled by groups of people who've come in long after the Greeks we're talking about it in this context. So it's just so the listener understands that populations have moved a lot and cultures are different than what you think when you hear the terms. So, but at any rate, it's Greek and barbarian is maybe a simple way to put it. And so you have this barbarian cult, so to speak, from the standpoint of this, this Greek king coming in. So it's this duality of foreign and domestic, this duality of barbaric in our sense of the word meaning wild and untamed versus civilized um and how that's handled you know what happens as you deal with the tension of the two things yeah so oh. mm -hmm. uh, dramatically the um, core of the play is um exquisitely constructed confrontation between two major opponents the young god dionysus and the young man pentheus the king of Thebes. <clears throat> so I want to read the introduction. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So it's before the royal palace of Thebes and the, the tomb of Semele, the mother of Dionysus. So uh, according to the, um, the preface here, uh, Dionysus enters. He is soft looking, even effeminate in his appearance. He's beardless and he's dressed in a fawn skin. A fawn skin in the play is, is a female's dress. Other females wear fawn skins. You know, a young deer skin. And they carry a thyrsus. It's a staff uh, tipped by ivy leaves. And throughout the play, uh, as it's performed, Dionysus wears a smiling mask. Mm-hmm. And then the introduction, Dionysus. I am Dionysus, the son of Zeus. Come back to Thebes, this land where I was born. My mother was Cadmus's daughter, Semele by name. Midwife by fire, delivered by the lightning's blast. And here I stand, a god incognito, disguised as a man. There before the palace, I see lightning marred my my lightning-marred mother's grave, and there upon the ruins of her shattered house, by the living fire of Zeus still smolders on. A deathless witness of Herod's, Herod's the queen of the gods, violence and rage against my mother, because Zeus had an affair with his mother, and Hera hated it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um. Far behind me lie those gold-livered, rivered lands, Lydia and Phrygia. Now those are in modern-day Turkey, where my journey began. Overland I went across the steppes of Persia, down through the Bactrian fastness, then to rich Arabia I came and so on. So he wanders around Mm -hmm. uh, getting followers. And... uh, I taught my dances to the feet of living men. The play mentions dancing a lot. Mm-hmm. And then from there, finally, and thence to Thebes. This city, for in Hellas, now shrills and echoes to my women's cries. And by women, he means the Bacchae, who are women from Asia, or modern-day Turkey, who support Dionysus with crazy rights. So we've got the setup of Pentheus, king of Thebes, representing the, you know, the controlled, civilized world of order and laws. And you've got Dionysus, who is actually his cousin, right? Because it's uh, his mother and Dionysus' mother were sisters. Um, Dionysus' cousin coming into town representing abandon, indulgence, you know, uh, all the kind of luxuriant aspects of life. And again, I think it's this duality, this concept up, I think it's really interesting that they're cousins, you know, they're different parts of the same entity, right? They're, they're, they're the same lineage. So he's one aspect of the lineage and he's the other aspect of the lineage is Pentheus. And now they're clashing and Pentheus is trying to keep him out, uh, keep him out of his city, to keep his city also, I think the other thing, too, is interesting, is you've got the idea of femaleness, untamed femaleness. You know, yeah. we know how the Greeks have an issue with controlling women, the ancient Greeks. Um, 
So there but, is that. But Dionysus is uh, opposite of that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because um, he says, I'm going to uh, marshal my maenads and take to the field. And um, and to these ends, I've laid my deity aside and go disguised as a man. So he's going to go up to Pentheus, not as a god, but as a as a man, a regular mm-hmm. mortal. <clears throat> and um, so then they have the chorus comes on. The chorus in most plays, you know, just amplifies the action. Mm-hmm. And you have choruses in all these Greek tragedies. Okay. So the chorus is uh, commenting on what's happening there. So Dionysus comes into Thebes. Pentheus is there. Pentheus is going to control him. Uh, so what happens? What happens once Dionysus gets there in this, you know, human mortal form? Okay. Well, they, before that, there's an episode with Tiresias. And that's a. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And Tiresias is a. Uh, what they call seer, he, he's a prophet and he's blind. Mm-hmm. And that's a reference to Homer because Tiresias appears in the Odyssey. Yes, we talked about him in the Odyssey in our series on the Odyssey for all you listeners. Please go back. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, it's, it's a sequence where Odysseus goes to the kingdom of the dead. He has to meet with Tiresias to find out how to get home. <clears throat> so anyhow, he confronts uh, Pentheus eventually in the play and uh, but not as a, a god you know and he's trying to get Pentheus to respect himself you know Dionysus but uh, Pentheus refuses so he's trying to get the Dionysus to respect the yeah the god that he appears to be a mortal worshiping, um, right. uh, bringing, you know, bringing this cult into town. Uh, I always, you know, whenever I've thought about this play, I, I just, I, there's so many imagery just in our own world of just, you know, the, the, the religious, the spiritual people coming to town, coming to a city. Uh, you know, we think about that in the sixties and seventies where that was kind of very popular and you had a lot of, different spiritual movements that were arising. You still have them today, but they were much more um, uh, abandoned, wilder uh, than as well. So that's kind of what this is like. Here's this wild, revelrous group coming to town, and here you have this staid, you know, culture, the staid populace, you know, and this young man, the cousin, trying to control it, trying to contain it. Um so when Dionysus gets to town, uh, Pentheus wants to uh, basically put it, you know, put this thing down. In addition, right, Gary, what's going on in the mountains is that his mother and some of the women that he's connected to are off in the mountains worshiping Dionysus. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So, so you have Dionysus coming to town. He wants to put it out. But meanwhile, his own mother and her uh women folk and women that she's related to and uh women that she's uh, uh connected to in town are actually supporting this so he's got to put out this uprising is what it feels like from pentheus's standpoint he needs to stop this before it gets out of control and 
Dionysus considers uh, Pentheus to be uh, sacrilegious to him and horrible. And, uh, and he wants to take his revenge out on him. That's a very good point too to point out. So we're talking about it in a very mortal standpoint, like here's this you know cult coming to town. But from a divine standpoint, Dionysus is a god, and he's not being properly honored in from the from his standpoint. So he is coming with a fury, in a sense. Yeah. And then, um, <clears throat> so they're having this exchange goes on and on. Um, <clears throat> which um, um, Dionysus considers, you know, increasingly sacrilegious and insulting to him and so on. And then for some reason, you know, he he asked uh, Pentheus, would you like to hear this beautiful singing and dancing of the Bacchae? And Pentheus, for some reason, agrees. He wants to see it. So, so he says, mm-hmm. uh, he tells him, okay, in order to see it, first you must dress yourself in, a, in women's clothes. So he has them be a cross-dresser. So, but also to set up beforehand. So they had, so when Dionysus came in, he had his uh, his soldiers, his, you know, guardsmen, uh, get him the, uh, to uh, arrest him, essentially. And try to put him in chains and put him behind bars and also put his women, his maenads behind bars, his worshippers. But they all break out. They all get free. And obviously because Dionysus is a god, he's just pretending to be a mortal man. So Pantheus is trying to put this the, this thing out. But Dionysus gets free and now they're going, now he's, he's you know, wondering, how does this guy pull this off? How did you get out? And that's when they start talking and that's when Dionysus is able to convince him to like, okay, well, maybe you should see what this is about. So sort of the setup is he wants to put out the, the put down the cult, but then the cult god that he doesn't realize who is, is actually gets him to, you know, to, aren't you interested in it? Don't you want to see it? And, it? and I think that plays on the whole duality of underneath the guy who's trying to be controlled and put this wildness out is often a desire to control your own need to be crazed and abandoned. So Pentheus really does want to sneak a peek at these naughty... Yeah, but initially he doesn't. Yeah, but no, but... Because initially he says, uh, dress in a women's dress, you mean? I would die of shame. But he he does. That's the thing. I mean... He does. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you can say, thou dost protest too much. It's like, if you don't want to put on a woman's clothing, you're just not going to do it. So... So he, he gives him, Dionysus gives him the skin of the uh, fawn and the Pentheus, I mean, the Thyrsus, the staff, and uh, puts a wig on uh, <clears throat> so he can witness, you know, the women. Yeah, but but the thing I want to emphasize, too, is just the idea that it, the, there's a naughty desire underneath the need to control. And Pentheus is like, and Dionysus knows that and plays on that. And so Pentheus wants to see you know, what's going on up there. Because I want the listener to understand, we may not have painted it enough, but it's the idea that Dionysus represents this wildness. You know, this these are these are women uh, in a culture which controls female sexuality, especially. These are women unfettered, right? And yeah. so obviously for a man, even in that culture, or maybe especially in that culture, who has both a fear of it and, a, and an attraction to it, 
he's going to be it's it may be easy to entice him and that's what happens but but what particularly in this case Dionysus really wants to take him down and what better way in a culture that is so misogynist than to make him dress up like a woman well and, and he says here Pentheus if you're still so curious to see forbidden sights so bent on evil still come out let us see you in your women's dress disguised as a maenad Clothes you may go and spy upon your mother and her company. And then the text says, uh, Pentheus enters from the palace and he wears a long linen dress, which partially conceals his fawn skin. He carries the thyrsus in his hand. On his head, he wears a wig, a long blonde curls bound by a snood. He is dazed and completely in the power of the god who has now possessed him. So he's given himself over. So the 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 controller is now controlled. And so he's he's given himself over to this the very the last thing he wanted to find himself indulging in. But that again could be what he was afraid of. Right. So anyhow. Um, so now he's dressed like a lady. He wants he wants to see the secrets of the of the god. And. Um, right. So he, he goes to uh, witness it, and um, <clears throat> and then this is what, what happens. Um, that he does wish it, but the, the, the women, uh, quote, fell upon him, and they snatched off his wig and snood. So she would recognize his face. And he touched her cheeks. He touches his mother's cheeks, screaming, No, no, mother, I am Pentheus, your own son, the child you bore to Echion. Pity me, spare me, mother. I have done a wrong. But do not kill your own son for my offense. But but she's possessed by Dionysus. But she was foaming at the mouth, her crazed eyes rolling with frenzy. She was mad, stark mad, possessed by Bac Bacchus, or Dionysus. Ignoring his cries of pity, she seized his left arm at the wrist, then planting her foot upon his chest, she pulled and wrenched away his arm at the shoulder. Not by her own strength, for the god had put inhuman power in her hands. I know, meanwhile, on the other side, was scratching off his flesh. Then a tenue and the whole horde of Bacchae swarmed upon him, shouts everywhere, he screaming with what little breath was left, they shrieking in triumph. One tore off an arm, another a foot. His ribs were clawed clean of flesh, and every hand was smeared with blood as they played ball with scraps of Pentheus's body. The pitiful remains lie scattered. His mother picking up his head, impaled it on her wand. She seems to think it is some mountain lion's head, and she carries it in triumph. Pretty violent stuff. So again, just a recap for the listeners. So Dionysus dresses him up like a woman, leads him up into the hills where these revelers are, his mother and the other women. And once, and as the as they describe in the play, as is described in the play, he is placed in such a position by Dionysus that 
he wants to be able to spy on them without them seeing him. He wants to be able to, you know, be able to see the naughty things that are going on. Just imagine a naughty boy who's who's peeking in, being a peeping Tom. He wants to see the naughty things that are going on and not be seen. But Dionysus makes it so that he's more seen than seer. And so once he's seen, his mother and all the other women don't recognize him for who he is, but he appears to be a wild animal. And they go and they tear him apart. Uh, her own son. She tears her own son apart. So imagine the, the horror. Well, of that. she tears she off his head. And, yeah. And, and she doesn't realize it. She doesn't realize it's it's, it's her son yet. So that's right. important, to, right. important to note. Okay. So and then the chorus sings after, after this violent episode representing the, uh, the Bacchae, the women. We dance to the glory of Bacchus. We dance to the death of Pentheus, the death of the spawn of the dragon. He dressed in women's dress. He took the lovely Thyrsus. It waved him down to death, led by a bull to Hades. Hail Bacchae, hail women of Thebes. Your victory is fair, fair the price, this famed price of grief. Glorious the game, to fold your child in your arms, streaming with its blood. Again, pretty heavy stuff. Very heavy, and, and plays on the founding of Thebes under Cadmus, who's a character in the play. Um, so the play ends with... Pentheus being torn apart and destroyed, his mother not realizing, and then slowly, through Cadmus, the founder of Thebes and her father-in-law, is it? Is it father-in-law or father? Father-in-law, right? Um, he then awakens her to the fact that she's killed her own son. Um, and, of course, that's the, the whole nature of tragedy, Greek tragedy, that this, this, rec this uh, recognition, this realization of this unintended horror that was produced. So we we end with her going into exile, Cadmus going to exile, uh, Pentheus dead, Dionysus triumphant in a sense, right? Because he's 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 gotten his revenge, his punishment for not honoring him. Let's talk about this a little bit, Gary, as we as we close. Um, I really felt there was this, it really does touch on things that we experience and we talk about now. You see it now, it, you see it in religion often, in religious leaders, I should say. Uh, and I'm someone that is religious, so I'm not, this is certainly not an indictment of religion. But you often see it on the, the most strident religious leaders often have this secret side, this dark side that they're indulging in. You know, maybe they have a mistress or something of that sort. And with Pentheus, you, this need to just tighten the screws was, you know, overlaying this other part of him that wanted to see what was going on. And so you have this duality between what's done in the light and what's done in the dark, between um, abstinence and sexuality, between abandoned and control. I mean, the play seems to really, I mean, that's, again, it's broad strokes, but we're just kind of giving a general sense of it. the play really does play on that, but play on it in a way that is very human, the, the way the characters respond and what they're doing now they see. And even, even the things that are humiliating for Pentheus, you know, the fact that he gets dressed up and has to, he doesn't realize that he's going through town looking, you know, 
like a crazed, you know, the very opposite of the the controlled leader that he was, that he ends up being torn apart by his own mother, you know. Um, it's really a human way of exploring what happens in culture when you have these tensions. When you, when you start well, basically, um, to me, mm-hmm. it's Euripides expressing that he's against religion. He's against, uh, you know, the Greek pantheon and all that. Why do you say that? Because it, that's true. No, but, so why, against, but, why, but why do you say that you see that in this? Yeah, because uh, he uh, makes Dionysus, Dionysus out to be a monster to uh, kill Pentheus the way he does. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't, <coughs> excuse me, I don't see the play quite like that. I, I don't see it quite like that, but that's you know. So we all have our different ways of, of taking it. Well, the, I, I translator, I, the translator saw it that way. Well, that that's great, but I don't. So okay, you know, well, I can, I can say, I, we all see it differently. I don't see it that way at all. I think it's my. I mean, I think you might see it that way if if you know there are different ways to look at something. Whereas if you're saying you know maybe if you have a thing about religion or not, but I'm looking at it from the standpoint I just see it more about. Not the indictment of religion itself, but the indictment of how that's expressed. You know, in other words, when people try to, in some sense, I think it's like when people try to suppress religion, that's the kind of boomerang or effect that occurs. So I almost see it very differently, or very, the the um, in the opposite. No, way as I as does. I said earlier, you know, um, Harold Smith says. Uh, Euripides had a lifetime of outspoken hostility to the Olympian system. Mm-hmm. And he does this by casting Dion- Dionysus as a devil and Pentheus as a noble martyr to human enlightenment. I, and I don't see him as a noble martyr. I see him as a totalitarian controller. So, I mean, that's the beauty of Euripides. That I mean, that's one person's point of view on it. I don't see this that way at all, at all. But um, it's... But that's what makes the Greek tragedies so great that yeah. we can we can interpret them in these different ways. It's interesting. This is why these plays are so great that we can have this discussion. Was it twenty four hundred years ago later, and and still have a lot of different ways of looking at it. That's just the power. And Euripides, I I'd have to say, I think he is my favorite of the the three Greek. Tra- um, uh, tragedy writers, although all three of them are incredible. Sophocles, all, Ajax, that we, he, he's yeah. my favorite as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Gary Stickle. Let's give a round of applause. And uh, thank you all for listening. This has been the 34 Circe Salon, the Parallax Channel. We've been having a great discussion about uh, Euripides. Uh, the Bakai, and also I want to point out that this just shows you the relevance of these works and why they still need to be read and discussed and performed. So with that, thank you all for listening. We'll be back again very soon, and God bless.